All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a returning guest, a very special guest. He uh, talked with me about his book, Hillary Invents, A Story of Love, Death, and Cover-Up. We have a recorded conversation about that book from September 1st, 2016. His name is Dean Arnold. He has just recently published a book, uh, which I read with great interest, a very fascinating book that he wove together, a variety of different narratives, his experiences in Ethiopia, the history of Ethiopia, and also... This uh, this view of Ethiopia from, I would say, a more Afrocentric pr- perspective. The title of the book is Unknown Empire, the True Story of Mysterious Ethiopia and the Future Arc of Civilization. Um, he's also written another book, Old Money, New South, Spirit of Chattanooga, The Cherokee Princes, Mixed Marriages and Murders, True, story, true Unknown Story Behind the Trail of Tree Tears. And he's also written a screenplay titled The Wizard and the Lion. That's about the friendship between J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. So uh, he's definitely done some serious writing. But uh, again, tonight we're going to talk about his book, Unknown Empire, The True Story of Mysterious Ethiopia and the Future Arc of Civilization. Dean, are you there? I am right here. Awesome. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. So, yeah, for pe- pe- awesome. Cool. So people who don't... Oh, yeah, your books are also available at your website, deanarnold.org and Amazon as well. But for people who may not know you, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you became interested in the uh, subject of mysterious Ethiopia? Sure. Uh, first of all, I, I kept Ethiopia out of the lead title because nobody really cares about Ethiopia, let's be honest. Uh, the book is about where the future is going. The book is about the fact that birth rates are uh, declining in the West way below replacement level. But Africa, particularly Asia as well, but they're dying. But Africa is having five children per woman. Replacement rate is 2.1. The West is having 1.5. And so in 50 to 100 years, uh, world population and therefore uh, political and economic power is shifting to the East and to Africa. Uh, and Christianity uh, will, in large part, part possibly be um, uh, happening or contained and preserved in Ethiopia, which is a 2,000-year Christian country. So the book is really about the future shift of civilization, and I feel like I'm kind of writing about the New World in 1650. You know, back then it was all about, you know, England and Shakespeare and, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth and uh, the Spanish Armada, and that was all the big news, you know, but uh, it wouldn't take long before the real action was in the New World. And so I, that, that's what my book is about. So I, I try to soundbite it that way, William, because uh, uh, that's really, it's a big deal. And I, I spent two or three years of my life working on this, not because I was just interested in an exotic, you know, little country over in Africa. And, you know, that's kind of cool and that's all neat and everything. But I wrote this because it's really important. Gotcha. And how, how, what, when did your relationship with Ethiopia begin? Okay, this book started... Uh, the seeds of it started in, uh, late nineties when I came across, stumbled across a uh, VHS video, national geographic video about the idea of the Ark of the Covenant being in Ethiopia, which of course I'd never heard of that. I was shocked to hear it. Uh, they, uh, national geographic was, was sympathetic toward the idea. Uh, and so I watched that with great interest. You know, whether the Ark is there or not is, that's an interesting question, and I use that as a device uh, for rear interest throughout my book. And if, so if you really want to know the answer to that, I think I provide the answer to that. 
but that's not really what captured my interest. What captured my interest is that there was an ancient Christian country in sub-Saharan Africa. Nobody told me. I didn't know. What? So I, I became interested in Ethiopia. I began looking into it and its history. Uh, and then uh, uh, I, be, uh, in my personal uh, Christian journey, I, I'm, my dad was a uh, kind of a fundamentalist Calvinistic pastor, great guy. Uh, but when I became well, around 35 or 40, I actually became Eastern Orthodox. That's a whole other story, not for today. But the Eastern Orthodox are very kindred and close uh, in worship and beliefs to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Uh, and so that gave me a, a, a stronger interest in Ethiopia. So, so I started taking a look at it. But what really got me to start seriously uh, studying Ethiopia was my pro-life background. I've, I've been a pro-family pro-life uh, activist uh, most of my life, and that's kind of where I cut my writing teeth was writing uh, news releases and newsletters and stuff for activist publications and that kind of stuff, and uh, so I've followed birth rates very carefully. One of the books that really moved me was Pat Buchanan's book, The Death of the West, that came out in 2002, where he uses only United Nations statistics to prove beyond a doubt that the West is dying and the future is in other places on the planet. And I was, I was uh, kind of bowled over by that. And I, I started praying about where is the future of Christianity going to be, um, uh, because, uh, because I'm interested in historic Christian nations with my kind of Eastern Orthodox bent. Uh, I was looking at places like Greece, uh, which is an ancient Christian stronghold. Well, Greece has a birth rate of 1.3. Uh, Greece is not going to exist in 100 years. Wow. Of course, all the Protestant nations have a birth rate about the same in Europe. Um, and so that, that's dying. I looked at Russia, which is slightly more help, uh, hopeful, but Russia is in kind of bad shape too. Uh, they they were at 1.1 or 1.2 at the fall of communism. They've risen. They've raised it up to about 1.7 1.8. Uh, Putin has uh, financial awards for families, uh, large families, and they have a holiday now called Make a Baby Day, where you get to go off work, take a day off work, and go make a baby. But they're trying very hard to get their demographics up. And I was looking at other countries. I spent a summer in South Korea, which is a very, very strong uh, Protestant uh, country. Uh, and uh, so I looked at Korea. Korea's in terrible shape. They're they're at 0.096. Uh, the lowest birth rate in the world. Uh, and so that's devastating. They're right there with Japan. Um, and so as I did that little survey, this was 10, 12 years ago, the only country that really met the two criteria of being a historic Christian nation and having a high birth rate was Ethiopia. Uh, and so I kind of targeted them on the map. I finally got my first chance to go there about three years ago, and I've taken three trips there. I've met a lot of uh, high-ranking people. And uh, was able to do a lot of research and interviewing, and was able to write my book. And why don't you talk about what makes Ethiopia unique among Christian nations in its in its history? It, it really does have a unique uh, church history. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we can go way, way back, and I'll do that in a minute. But okay. let's just start with Christian history. The the Christian history starts with something that. Christians would be familiar with. In Acts chapter 8, uh, the Apostle Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, who went back and brought the gospel to uh, the Ethiopian people, uh, sort of representing the first Gentile nation in a way. Um, and that movement grew at a grassroots level. 
but by uh, the early 300s, uh, it had grown to the point where the Ethiopian emperor, Azana, converted to Christianity. And this is before Rome became Christian under Constantine. And people, uh, there's some arguments back and forth about uh, countries that uh, Armenia and some others that might be the first Christian nation. But I think I prove in the book that Ethiopia is the first Christian nation and definitely the first Christian empire. And so it, uh, it began to obviously uh, grow as a Christian nation at that point. And then they spent a thousand years. Uh, I guess 1,500 now, uh, fighting uh, Muslims on every side of their borders. Uh, And then in uh, uh, the late 1890s, they were invaded by uh, Italy, which sought to uh, convert the Orthodox Christian barbarians into Catholics. And uh, Italy uh, formed the largest European army ever to appear on African soil. And uh, so Ethiopia rounded up uh, their minions, and they had a great big battle at a place called Agua in northern Ethiopia. And the Italians were absolutely routed. And it was, you know, back then it was the shot heard around the world. Everybody couldn't believe it. And uh, the the emperor uh, who put that all together for Ethiopia was named Menelik. And after that great battle, there was people all over the West who named their child Menelik, and Menelik and his wife, uh, the queen, uh, appeared on the Time magazine covers of their day, and it was quite a quite a thing. Uh, Ethiopia has thus become the only African nation to never be colonized, and they claim that they've never been successfully invaded ever. Um, the book spends quite a bit of time, uh, a few chapters, uh, recounting that whole saga, that whole uh, battle. Uh, and then about Forty years later, there was a, a guy in Italy who never forgot the humiliating defeat that Italy uh, received by the Ethiopians. And so he decided to go back and invade them and win that battle back. His name was Mussolini, Benito Mussolini. And so the fascists in 1935 invaded uh, – committed horrible war crimes, uh, chemical gassings, mustard gas, killed – uh, Ethiopians by the hundreds of thousands, uh, but the Ethiopians outlasted Mussolini, allied themselves with the Allied powers, and were able to successfully uh, see Mussolini uh, leave Ethiopia. Uh, that was under uh, Emperor Haile Selassie, which might be a name that some people are familiar with. Uh, so my book has several chapters that talk about that great saga as well. Now, if we want to go a little further back, um, Before Christianity, Ethiopia has about a thousand years of Jewish uh, heritage, um, and this is related to them uh, claiming to have the Ark of the Covenant. But if you look in biblical passages, there's no question that, you know, by the 700s or 800s BC, that there's an Ethiopian Jewish presence because the scriptures talk about it. Uh, There is, uh, there's an Ethiopian uh, who saves the prophet Jeremiah after he got thrown into a well to die. Uh, so that's an Ethiopian character. Um, there is uh, the Queen of Sheba, who has an uh, interesting encounter with King Solomon in 1000 BC. Uh, Ethiopians claim that through that union, a son was born who was sort of, uh, his name was Menelik I, 
that through that union, uh, he brought uh, several Jewish uh, nobles to Ethiopia, and that kind of began the Ethiopian uh, Jewish tradition. 500 years before that, there was another famous Ethiopian bride. Uh, you want to take a guess at that, William? I don't want to put you on the spot with your, your Bible knowledge. but uh, uh, Remind me. Bible. I did read it. So. But, Oh, you read the book. <laughs> you got a little extra heads up. Yeah, so Moses married an Ethiopian woman. Um, and then 500 years before that, Ethiopia claims to uh, uh, be uh, – they, they claim that Melchizedek, uh, who is the priest most high, uh, who uh, was the sort of the spiritual father of Abraham, the first Jew, they, they claim that Menelik was Ethiopian. Uh, and uh, oh, did I say Menelik? Melchizedek is Ethiopian. Uh, of course, in Christian theology, Jesus Christ, uh, the the great high priest for Christianity, is in the order of Melchizedek. That we we no longer have the Aaronic uh, priesthood of the tribe of Levi. We're in the uh, <clears throat> the priesthood of Melchizedek. But finally, Ethiopians claim to go really far back because they claim that the Garden of Eden was located in Ethiopia. I actually spent a couple chapters in the book talking about that. It's great fun. I wouldn't uh, fall on the sword for that belief, but I think it's a very interesting, uh, very plausible belief that's worth uh, looking at and worth our attention. And uh, so I spent a lot of time on that as well. Right, because in the Bible it mentions the Blue and White Nile, right? So I think the Blue Nile starts in Ethiopia, is that correct? That is correct. And Genesis that, chapter two talks talks about Ethiopia. But that's one of the interesting aspects of Ethiopia is they do had did have a Jewish presence until the Falashas were lifted out to Israel, right? I don't know if there's any Jews still left in Ethiopia. Do you know? Do you know? Uh, there's a, there's a few thousand left. Um, there was quite a few more, you know, twenty five, thirty, fifty, hundred years ago. Uh, a lot of them did leave. Uh, with the movement you're talking about, there's been some movies made uh, about the uh, the Ethiopian Jews that escaped from a temporary communist reign in Ethiopia and, and, and went back to Israel. So yeah, that's a that's a well known story. Right. So I mean, that was kind of like one of the darker elements of Ethiopia is that their kingship finally ended sometime in the 20th century. Correct. That's correct. A 3,000 year uh, Christian empire. Jewish Christian, Judeo Christian Empire, I guess you'd say, uh, finally ended with the uh, assassination of Emperor Haile Selassie in 1975. There was a 15 year communist reign, which was bloody, as communist reigns are. Uh, about a million people were genocided. And then uh, Ethiopia uh, retook their government uh, with a high, strong Christian influence and has been one of the leading. Uh, uh, I don't know if you call them democracies, but uh, one of the, the leading semi-democratic governments in Africa since then. And what, uh, I mean, they had, let's see, what what distinguishes Ethiopian Christianity itself? What makes it uh, different? The Ethiopian Orthodox Church, right? Yeah, well, um, so let's talk about Christianity. The largest Christian expression in the world is Roman Catholicism, which is about one billion. Uh, the second largest is Eastern Orthodox Christianity, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, etc., uh, which is about 400 million Christians. Um, uh, <clears throat> it's hard to count Protestants because, you know, they're so divided that you can't pick one group. Um, 
so we'll just leave them aside for this exercise we're doing here. Gotcha. But then the, the next group after that is a group called, sometimes they're called Oriental Orthodox, sometimes they're called Syrian Orthodox, sometimes they're just known as Copts, C-O-P-T-S. Uh, Copts are pretty much Egyptian only, but but the uh, the wider group is called Oriental Orthodox, and uh, that would be Egyptian Copts, Ethiopian Christians. Southern India has a uh, Oriental Orthodox movement. Armenia, the whole country of Armenia, and then there's pockets in Syria and some other places, and that's called the Ori, the ancient Oriental Orthodox Christians. Uh, of those, uh, Ethiopian Christians make up about 80% of all the Oriental Orthodox. So uh, Ethiopia is that 800-pound gorilla in that whole thing. Gotcha. And the population right now is pretty sizable. It's like 110 million, right, at the 20th century? At the beginning Correct. Of the 20th. Second, lar- second largest country in Africa. And, of course, Africa is, is uh, uh, like 1.4 billion right now. It's going to double in a couple of decades. Um, and uh, really, uh, you know, what I... I talk about a lot of things in the book, a lot of interesting things that we've already named, but what I'm really trying to uh, communicate to my readers um, is that the future is going to be in Africa uh, because of birth rates. Ethiopia is the cultural and spiritual leader of Africa because of its ancient Christian and Jewish heritage. It's had a written script for thousands of years, which the other African nations generally haven't. Um, The African Union uh, is permanently located in Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia, and the uh, the West is not going down without a fight. There is a huge, frantic effort by the United Nations, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations, by other progressives and liberals to bring contraception and uh, population control to Africa to keep them from growing like they're growing. You know, some some people probably think they're doing it, you know, for uh, sustainability reasons or, you know, to help the Africans so they don't grow so fast so they, you know, won't be in poverty. But um, my book, I think, does a pretty good job of documenting the fact that a good part of that movement is really rooted in darker elements of eugenics, racism, white supremacy, uh, and all those things that, uh, um, you know, are known to be evils. Yeah, you had a, a, something in Chapter 19, I think it was May 5th, 2009. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Ted Turner, Sir George Soros, and David Rockefeller all at one meeting. I mean, it's like uh, the usual suspects. I mean, talking about all this stuff, trying to curtail growth in Ethiopia. Well, yeah, and to, to help better dramatize that anecdote you just brought up, William, um, you know, they got together for a meeting, those those uh, major oligarchs of the West don't get together very often, and they got together to discuss what is the most important problem on the planet. And each of them gave like a fifteen-minute presentation and kind of gave their issue, you know, their their angle of what it was. Well, when it was all done, they all agreed on Bill Gates's presentation, which is the biggest problem on the planet is Africa's overpopulation. So they all agreed together to to uh, work together with Bill Gates on the biggest problem in their perception on the planet, which was population growth in Africa. Uh, and so uh, 
number two, who's the, who's the second richest guy? Warren Buffett. He gave $31 billion to the Gates Foundation so they could focus their efforts on this project. So, yeah, uh, crazy. Um, but that is, that is in truth what happened. And what's the position of the Ethiopians against these external, uh, in, you know, influences, people like Gates and Rockefeller? Um, yeah, it's probably like asking an American, what do you think of Trump? Um, <laughs> uh, you're gonna, you know, it depends on who you ask. You know, right, right. What country, what, what part of the country in, how, how religious are they, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that it would run the gamut. Um, I think... Uh, I would like to think that there's not a lot of card-carrying progressives uh, in Ethiopia. I would think there's mostly just people who are excited about, you know, newfound economic growth and some of the, the goodies that come with Western involvement. And because of that, they're not really thinking through the fact that abortion and contraception and uh uh, limiting of families and GMO foods and all these kind of things are all part of the package that that comes to them. Um, you know, I hope that my book and other efforts will help enlighten some of those. Now, there's there's a good, you know, nearly 50 percent of Ethiopia's Orthodox Christian, and uh, then the rest are uh, Protestants and Catholics. Uh, the rest of the 65% Christian, there's 35% Muslim uh, population as well. But anyway, uh, but there is a strong group of devout, solid Orthodox Christians who I think would be in a little bit better position to solidly oppose these kind of Western things. And and while, though, you know, as a Christian, I'm not a big fan of uh, Islam, obviously, uh, but there's actually a silver lining, a, a positive side to the 35% Muslim population in the sense that they are very much opposed to Western values, you know, whether it's right. birth control, abortion, pornography, you know, all the great Satan stuff. Uh, so that does help the Christian majority in Ethiopia stand against those kinds of things. Now, it's a, it's a bit of a horse race right now because the Muslims want to gain majority in Ethiopia, uh, and they're more apt to oppose uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the UN and all that stuff and their population control efforts than the actual Christians are. Uh, and so, you know, if if current trends aren't kind of identified and reversed, uh, Ethiopia could finally become a Muslim-majority uh, country in 10, 20, 30 years uh, after being majority Christian for almost 2,000 years. Right, that would be remarkable. But is there? Would you say that there is a sizable Ethiopian diaspora? Because it seems here in the states, I, there's just larger, more vibrant Ethiopian communities, especially here on the west coast. Two to three million is the figure that uh, I've come across. Uh, but they're they're mostly located in major cities, so you're going to come across them a lot if you're in Los Angeles. Uh, there's a, I think the largest diaspora is in D.C. Uh, we have a big one two hours away here in Atlanta. There's a big one in Toronto. So, yeah, it, uh, there's a lot of Ethiopians in the States. And you were able to kind of travel around uh, in the kind of backcountry without electricity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, that was uh, on my third trip. I just uh, 
for some reason I had a bee in my bonnet. I was just uh, I wanted to find uh, a village in Ethiopia that has never had electricity. Um, I thought that would be easy. It was actually more difficult than I thought. Um, but the reason I wanted to find one is because we have a notion in the West that if you go to an African country, uh, African village or city or town that doesn't have electricity, that's because they're pagans who have not been blessed to have a uh, Protestant Western missionary visit them and bring the gospel and electricity. Um, but Ethiopia completely blows that stereotype because you've got these unplugged villages who've never had power, who've been worshiping Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. Uh, so I wanted to go find one and interview them and talk to them, and uh, I finally did. Uh, I, in the book, we, we kind of have fun with the journey because the the place, the village that we went to, uh, uh, when we got there, just the week before, they had built power lines to the village. <laughs> and so we walked another hour by foot to find another village that didn't have power lines yet. And when we got there, we found out that they got the power that day, just before we got there. So then we walked another hour that night, in the middle of the night, and we finally, finally found a village uh, that was unplugged. So, yeah. And what was it like for you to kind of adapt to their their, you know, coffee ceremonies, their food ways, things like that? Well, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful country. Uh, uh, and you know, that's one of the great things about traveling and going to other countries. And, you know, uh, Christ is, his, his inheritance is the nations. And so it's a cool country. They got this coffee ceremony they've been doing for a thousand years. You sit around for a couple hours and, and you have three rounds of coffee and, um, uh, that's that's an interesting thing. Uh, they've got bright colors. They've got phenomenal iconography and art. Um, the part about Ethiopia that is most interesting to me is that there's churches everywhere, and the churches are packed, and the churches are packed with young people. And that was just something for me that I wasn't quite quite ready for as a Westerner. You know, we're just used to church is sort of declining and secularism is so much on the rise and especially for young people they're ditching the faith well in ethiopia it's the exact opposite so to see these huge churches everywhere that are teeming and overflowing i mean the services half the people are outside and they have these processions you know parading around the church thousands at a time it's truly a remarkable experience so to me that that's uh, one of the things that really uh has attracted me and and they start some of their services at 3 a.m and go on for hours right yes uh your average devout ethiopian is probably in church um 15 to 20 hours a week wow that's that's not the west that's for sure (laughs) yeah and then what's the importance of the ark what is the importance of the ark not just in ethiopia but also your book yeah, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, well, uh, for those who don't know, and I think everybody knows because of the darn movie, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Spielberg movie with Harrison Ford, um, the Ark of the Covenant is the uh, golden chest that Moses made on the top of Mount Sinai or after getting the instructions on how to build it on the top of Mount Sinai. And um, 
it was, it became the central object of Old Testament worship. That's that was what was in the Holy of Holies, the most holy inner place that uh, the high priests went into once a year to uh, offer a sacrifice of blood on the uh, on the <clears throat> Ark of the Covenant, and uh, it was a very dangerous operation. You know, uh, a lot of people know that the high priest had a rope tied around his ankle that, in case he died. During the ordeal, they could drag him back out. Um, but that is, uh, so it's sort of known as perhaps the most famous uh, object, you know, in the history of the world kind of a thing. Um, and it disappears in the Old Testament uh, right after David and Solomon. Um, there's hardly any mention of it made. There's one offhand uh, mention made, um, and I'll talk about that in the book to a great detail. You can buy the book and read about it. It's very interesting. Um, and I've got various uh, reasons, biblical and historical, for uh, why or why not the Ark of the Covenant is in Ethiopia. Um, and I'll, uh, I won't be a spoiler here, so I'll just kind of leave that at that. But um, the Ethiopians will tell you that they're very proud, obviously. They have a, every, every church has a uh, prototype, a uh, replica of the Ark of the Covenant in their church, in their altar, uh, and it's kind of like uh, it's bigger than George Washington and the cherry tree. It's I don't know what an American icon is. Uh, I don't know what, what, what would you say, um, but it's it's huge to their whole national identity. They love the Ark of the Covenant, but they're very clear that it's it's only a relic now, because the other thing you'll see all across Ethiopia are pictures of Christ and his mother Mary, and they believe Mary is the fulfillment of the Ark because the Word of God himself, just like the Ten Commandments were in the Ark of the Covenant, Christ was in the womb of Mary, and so the Word of God himself, God himself, is the fulfillment of the Ark, as is his mother. And so you'll see pictures of Christ and Mary all over Ethiopia. You'll see them in taxi cabs. You'll see it on the, you'll see those pictures on the side of buses. You'll every home, everywhere you go, around people's necks. And so they're, they're followers and worshipers of Jesus Christ. Uh, and they say that the Ark of the Covenant was an Old Testament relic uh, that has now been fulfilled in Christ. So they don't worship the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, I've got some people in my book who say that they, one of the reasons they think God and his providence brought the Ark there was so that the Jews wouldn't continue to use it in worship. Uh, so it's they keep it underground and out of sight, and it's no longer to be used. They're very proud of it. Yeah, it's supposedly in Axum, right? It's supposedly in Axum. Yeah, Axum is a uh, a city in northern uh, Ethiopia. But uh, it's like uh, their kind of icon for their whole country is that ark. And some of the people you said in your book, the ark was like like miraculously. Uh, levitated all the way down to Ethiopia. Was it the 8th century or something like that? Uh, 10th century, uh, same time as Solomon. Uh, the, the, um, the sacred book of Ethiopia that gives that whole story is called the Kibar Nagast. And, uh, and so their, their uh, tradition uh, is that uh, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba had a son, uh, she came back to Ethiopia. He was raised in Ethiopia, but at some point he wanted to go see his daddy. And so he brought a contingent back to Jerusalem, 
spent four or five years with his father, Solomon, who said that this kid looked a lot like his father, David. And But after a few years, he said, I want to go back to Ethiopia because I'm going to be the king there, and I want to bring the Old Testament religion uh, to Ethiopia. So Solomon begrudgingly uh, allowed him to do that. And he took with him like 300 nobles, uh, sons of, of the nobles of, uh, of Jerusalem. So they had a, um, you know, a, nobil- a nobility and an elite class that came back with him, uh, including the son of the high priest. And according to their tradition, uh, at that point, uh, they secretly uh, swapped out the Ark of the Covenant, let's say, and uh, they took the real Ark of the Covenant with them back to Ethiopia. And according to their tradition, uh, the ark took them across the Red Sea. Uh, they were floating like a meter or two above the above the sea as they went across, and that sort of thing. A lot of sort of Old Testament, like uh, you know Moses and the Red Sea crossing kind of imagery. Um, right. In my uh, in my assessment of the situation, um, I think it's more likely that the ark got there in uh, the fourth or fifth century. Uh, and so that's where I part ways with some of the Ethiopian tradition, but I, I, I adopt most of it. Another interesting aspect of their religious practice is they adhere to the Book of Enoch as well, which uh, not as a, uh, common in other Christian churches. Right. Well, for, yeah, they believe Ethiopian was Enoch too. Um, and, uh, did I reverse that? They believe Enoch, Enoch was, was an Ethiopian. Ethiopian right? Yeah, and the, they uh, we wouldn't really have the Book of Enoch if it wasn't for Ethiopia. Um, it, uh, there was only fragments of it uh, in Europe, and and, the, and Europe did not really think it existed anymore. And then a uh, 17th century explorer, James Bruce, I think his name is, um, he uh, he went to Ethiopia, discovered the Book of Enoch, and brought it back to Europe, um, and. Uh, uh, so they've had they have a full copy. It's actually part of the Ethiopian canon of scripture. So it's in their Bible. Uh, it's it's held as a uh, as an important and reliable book in other traditional Christian circles, like the Eastern Orthodox. They don't say it's scripture, uh, but it's actually quoted in the Book of Jude, the Book of Jude in the New Testament. So it's a pretty esteemed book, and we wouldn't have the full thing if it wasn't for Ethiopia. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, we're at um, about 40 minutes. Is there anything that you'd like to add or anything I missed, anything you want to, uh, you know, put in here before we wrap this up? Uh, uh, you know, just thinking about some of the things you discuss on your uh, channel and that sort of thing, but uh, the the oligarchs, you know, who are into the occult and the New Age, uh, there's a lot of that that's mixed into my book that I talk about. Uh, I talk about the fact that the Gates uh, are, are, were, we don't know, donors to um, the uh, Lucis Trust. Uh, and I've got all that documented. They, they tried to wipe it away from the Internet, even from the uh, Wayback Machine Internet Archives. But I, I took screenshots 10 years ago proving that... Uh, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates are donors to the Lucis Trust. The Lucis Trust uh, derives from the word Lucifer, uh, and they admit that on their website. Um, and the Lucis Trust is sort of the key 
group that's involved with the United States Meditation Room, which is kind of the spiritual heart and soul of the United Nations. They've got this room that is kind of a, a simulation of the Holy of Holies, Israel's Holy of Holies, with this arc-shaped Nordic rock right in the center. Right, like it's a square and, box, yeah. Yeah, so I do some literary stuff with the true Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia and this false Ark of the Covenant in Manhattan at the United Nations, uh, but also tying in the uh, this the, the Luciferian stuff, the Gates being uh, donors to this Luciferian organization and that sort of thing. So this thing is pretty uh, it's pretty dicey, and if you're into uh, the conspiratorial stuff, which I kind of am, and I think uh, some of your shows deal with that sort of stuff. If you want to know more about that, this would be a good book to read. Yeah, definitely. An excellent book. I highly recommend this book. It's an excellent history book, also first-person account of Ethiopia. Again, the title is Unknown Empire, The True Story of Mysterious Ethiopia and the Future Arc of Civilization by Dean W. Arnold, published December 2019, available at deanarnold.org and amazon.com. Dean Arnold, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it, William. Thank you. All right, take care.